0: Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with a Canadian-based German interior architect and founder of the State of Craft, Daniel Goldberg. Tune in as we chat about what he learned in his formative years working for Sir Norman Foster in London, and why designing a yacht for him is like designing a small world, and his progressive approach to interior architecture, designing from the inside out. Hey, Daniel, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing?
1: Hi there. Um, I'm well, thank you. Where are you? I'm in Ottawa. I'm in Canada at the moment. Fantastic. Getting, getting ready for the, the colder season soon. Yeah. What's the weather yeah. like now? It's still quite nice, actually. It's the I think it's the uh, the sort of autumn time, September, October. It's my favorite time in, in Canada. I think it's really beautiful and when
0: the leaves are changing and... Oh, the beautiful. air is sort of crisp and clear Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful Fantastic, we were just talking about canoeing earlier and uh, we'll come, maybe come back to that at the end of the podcast sure. you're, an in, you're an internationally acclaimed architect and founder of State of Craft, originally from southwest Germany and now based in Canada as you say, after mm-hmm. 80, 18 years uh, living in and working in London, what was life growing up like in uh, Germany?
1: Um, well, I, 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 I think I had a a wonderful time growing up in germany really um i grew up really close to switzerland and france and uh it's sort of the southwest corner of germany
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh very much an outdoor lifestyle uh, i grew up in in freiburg which is uh, a university town and a historic city which is which is quite amazing and so I, yeah i had a great i had a great uh childhood i did a lot of skiing in in winter and um played a lot outside in in summer so yeah with lots of lots of friends it was a, a great a great time i think to uh to grow up
0: and we, were your family creative people
1: uh no not 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 really in that. they weren't in creative uh professions really um my 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 dad uh, was in the construction industry and in sales and, um, he
0: developed some, some sort of technical products as well. And my mother was, was a teacher. And, um, so where, where did you, re- when did you realize that you wanted to become an architect?
1: Uh, probably quite, quite late in my teens. I think I was probably done with, uh, grade 13 and, um, and I had to sort of make up my mind what I still want to do next. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, Grade 13. Like,
0: yes. Do you have grade 13 in Germany?
1: Uh, I think not anymore, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was great, uh, definitely 13 when I was there.
0: Wow. I thought it only went to 12. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, no, at least I only 13. went to 12. Yeah, there was also Saturday school as well. I think
1: that's also not, that's also gone. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I think I, I sort of decided that fairly late, but I suppose it was sort of um, between architecture and anthropology, possibly archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, Those were the sort of uh, things I was interested in, but I decided I decided in the end to to study architecture. I, I, I was always interested in in art in school, and my mother was sort of really furthering my interest in in art. And mm-hmm. I was also interested in in the sort of more scientific or technical aspects of building of construction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I th- I think that's uh, I, I felt architecture brings together those two worlds and and it is obviously not that far away from anthropology and the consideration of how people want to um, live and um, thinking about community and individuals and so on so I think it is it is sort of integrated though my various interests but yeah I probably didn't know what to study until I was maybe 19 or 18 19 something like that
0: but that's cool that you knew then. It might might have sounded like a long way off at the time, but um, yeah. so many people in life don't even know what they're doing when they're like in their, you know, fifties. But um, yeah, we'll... so so what did you do? Did you apply for an architectural school?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I knew that uh, I couldn't study architecture where I grew up. The, the local university didn't offer that as a as a course, so um, I had to sort of move north, and I studied for. Um, You know, number of years in at uh, university, two hours, roughly two hours north of Frankfurt in Kassel, which is pretty much in the center of Germany. And so I finished my master's degree in architecture there. And um, I think I was done with that in 1998.
0: Mm -hmm. How many years were you at university? I think I was probably
1: um, studying architecture for six years, something like that.
0: So that's just such a long time, isn't it? I guess people want kind of quick gratification Mm -hmm. these days and qualifications these days. It's such an incredibly long period of time. I've heard people are studying architecture for like eight years as well. Um, Yeah, that's that's true. That's a massive commitment. Was part of that also working in in various architectural organizations?
1: Um, Yeah, to some extent. I I did an internship during the summer working for an architect in Denver in Colorado in the US. Oh wow. Um and that was that was really interesting. Uh so I enjoyed that a lot. And I also worked on construction sites um during the summer um mm-hmm. in semester breaks, working with a company that uh created uh, prefabricated steel structures. Mm-hmm. Uh I worked um with a um a bricklayer so yeah, I did I did various things to sort of have exposure to the the, the, the real world, as it um, if you want, and that was that was really part of that was a requirement of the course that I that I took at university.
0: Yeah, yeah. and then how,
1: how did you end up in London? I I knew that I wanted to try and work for Foster and Partners. I was fascinated by that uh, studio and the work that they um, produced, and I applied for a job. Just shortly after my, my my sort of completion of my studies mm-hmm. and um I was fortunate to to get in and I remember going to London for the interview and soon after I got a letter and i was I was thrilled that I had my first job and I packed my bags and um or one bag maybe and moved to london and that was at right at the the back end of the 1990s. And I was then working at Foster & Partners for about
0: six years or so. Wow. And then that, I guess it was a much smaller organization than what it is today.
1: Yeah, I don't know how, how, how big the, the the studio is now. I think they are well over 1,000 people, I imagine. But, yeah, it was mm. much smaller. There were maybe 200. I'm not sure. Something like
0: that. So was that a massive change for you? to, to Well, I guess you went to Denver um, to that kind of um, work experience Opportunity, sure. so you get a taste yeah. of kind of more global experience um was it did it feel natural to be in london and at Foster and partners
1: well i mean it was definitely a very steep learning curve I, you know I, mean, I was in a big city and uh different culture different different language and i was i was really thrown in at the deep end but you know i i enjoyed that i think it was a great adventure and and it uh, was in yeah it was a lot of work but um, an amazing and eye-opening learning experience. I really, I really had a great time there. And what projects did you work on there? Um, mainly cultural uh, projects, big cultural mm-hmm. sort of uh, projects. Um, um, the Sage Gateshead, which is a music centre, cultural centre in the north of England. Um, but uh, my first project actually was the British Museum Great Court, mm-hmm. uh, the the refurbishment. And the basically the creation of the central uh, courtyards for for museum use. Um, that was my my first project, which was I always felt was a, a hard, hard act to follow.
0: That was really an amazing amazing project and a great experience. And that I guess that that is a transformative project in terms of the cultural um, uh, in the in the cultural sector in in London. Um, Mm-hmm. Was it was we were you involved in it before? It, they kind of they kind of created that roof across the top, or you'd create the roof across the top when it was separate buildings.
1: Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't there uh, when the uh, it was a competition that Foster and Partners won. So I wasn't uh, yet a part of the office when they submitted their entry. But um, I joined at a point when where this project really was starting to move to site, and um, I had um sort of i was lucky to have the experience of seeing the whole project coming together and uh, working on the design and working through design stages but also seeing the project being built on site and going to site um that was that was amazing but yeah the 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 bits and pieces i was working on that i was responsible for were not the roof um it was really more about uh What happened in the courtyard itself signage desks um, various finishes handrails steps um, various fit out details and also uh, critically the interfaces between old and new um, stitching in the new um, level courtyard with the central reading room and the the roof covering that whole courtyard and how how those uh, new elements relate to the openings in the, um, the porticos in the four, four directions, um, Northeast, Southwest, how, how that all comes together and how these new, how the new and old elements meet. Uh, that was something I, I worked on quite a bit and we worked with an architectural historian on, um, reinstating some of the historic, um, elements, the historic scheme, particularly in the entrance hall. So that was all, um, that was all pretty, pretty incredible. Um, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I was, I remember that I was one of the first things I had to do was to go and take some additional measurements in the King's library. And, um, the whole, the whole gallery was closed. So I had the whole space, um, on my own. And I was taking measurements and, triple-checked, I just wanted to get it right, but it was just such a great atmosphere to be all alone in that in that vast hall, in that amazing space, with all that wow. history.
0: Was it nighttime?
1: No, it wasn't, it wasn't nighttime. Okay. Uh, I'd be yeah. pretty
0: scared. I remember we, we did a project at the VNA uh, with the Serpentine Gallery called Give and Take. It was probably around the same time, actually. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in the V&A, like at one in the morning, measuring, putting tape on the floor. <laughs> very very low-budget signage system that we created. But I remember something moved or made a massive bang and I absolutely wet myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But they're steep with history naturally and and what's really cool was seeing the British Museum, that transformation. And every time I go to London now, you know, you go through there or past there and just heaving with people and people just really enjoying. It it just made that place far more, um, you know, far more engaging. The whole experience is incredible. Yeah, and no. It's, it is it's true, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful to see that kind of the old and the new. You know how mm-hmm. how we live then and how we live today and how they can actually come together um mm-hmm. so power, powerfully like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it,
1: it's really amazing how it uh, how it sort of stitches into the um fabric of Bloomsbury and the courtyard is uh really a public public square that happens to be covered and uh you can use this uh, route through the british museum through the courtyard as a sort of urban shortcut so there's mm-hmm. this really this this public this urban aspect to the whole project but then it is also obviously very much about the finer details and the displays and the, the you know the, the presentation display of of the various artifacts and so on so
0: it's um yeah it's got a it's quite multi-layered so to Norman Foster was the founder of Foster and Partners. Was he involved in this project as well? Did you get to work closely with him?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know he was very much um, involved in this project alongside the senior partners um, at that at that practice. Yeah, it's uh, there was there were regular regular reviews, uh, design reviews, and um, it was really an important project
0: at, mm. at that studio at the time. So how do the six years at Foster's influence you and in your approach to architecture and interiors?
1: Um, uh, for in, in so many in so many ways, I, I, I think. Um, I, th- I think central to my experience of that studio was that, uh, that realization or that approach to design as considering design as a process, not as a one-off act, but... Um, this sort of constant research and development uh, process, Um, the the refinement of design solution, the testing of ideas, thinking in options, and um, looking at prototypes, building models, and jumping from hand sketches to computer drawings from 2D to 3D, Um, and really trying to sort of thoroughly analyze the potential of a project and and really working working through that. I think that process, um, when it's done well, can be can lead to really successful projects. And I think that that's really an something that um, I think we always try to try to uh, integrate into our studio, into our workflow, into our process. Um, there's always the fight against time, and um, but I think it's important to carve out the that sort of freedom to to and time to to really be immersed in that process so that's one aspect mm-hmm. another element is really uh, another sort of um approach or view of architecture and design in at foster and partners was that um it really doesn't matter whether you design a door handle or a large building it's 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 about asking the right questions first and then um integrating different design dis- disciplines. So um, working across all scales and um, working in, a, you know, working with a multidisciplinary disciplinary team, mm-hmm. um, I think it's important to really, to really um, integrate, integrate all of those various aspects of a project. So I think that's another element that's really important to, to me.
0: Yep. And that 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 experience, a bit like myself when I was at Pentagram for five years, um, I remember walking in the door and and a, a junior assistant, and I remember scratching my head, watching the partners working and thinking. And I'm just this is before computers as well. I don't know if it, was there computers around when you was, when you started.
1: I think th- yeah, there were. But oh, okay, I also remember having a still a sort of a Mayline ruler on my desk. So I think there was yeah. a bit of, bit of both going on. It was the sort of hybrid yeah. um, it, transitional period. And I, yeah. I presume now most, most things are done on the computer, but yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it, which is also fine. I think, uh, there's a, there's a time and, and place for, for different tools. Right. And, um, sometimes there's maybe too much emphasis these days on just doing things on the computer or straight away yeah. on the computer when there's an argument for, for doing things by hand still. But yeah, no, when I was there, there was, there was definitely a bit of a hybrid way of working.
0: And you talked a bit about, I guess I get the sense that it was a really hard time, six years. I know uh, when I was working in, at, at Pentagram, I was there for five years, as I said, but it felt like, I think, I'm, I'm sure in time, it was mm-hmm. 10 years. I think I doubled my, well, true, yeah. and, and that, that fast learning had, right. you know, in the deep end on these really important projects, really, mm-hmm. you know, your career really progressed fast because of that. I think Did that's you? true.
1: I think that's very true. Yeah, I think there, there's just such an intensity, right, that comes with that. You really want to um, absorb and learn and, you know, you've got the ambition to, to do well. And um, really, uh, I, I think it was great to be in this open plan studio to be sort of exposed to so many mm-hmm. different projects going on all, all around you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I really benefited from that a lot. It was just uh, as important as, as actually working on your own project. So yeah, I, I think that you're right. I think um, in those in those first few years when you're thrown into a new job, um, there's there's it, is, it feels quite intense and I, and I, it's a lot. It was a lot of work, but also hugely enjoyable. So why would you leave? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think I, I sort of well, first of all. Uh, the pay wasn't great, um, was on a, <laughs> a uh, banal level. But um, yeah. I, I, I think I always wanted to set up on my own. Eventually, I knew that, and I really sort of tried to absorb what I could with a view to being able to use those tools when I eventually set up on my own. So that was definitely in the back of my mind. Um, but I didn't didn't set up uh, my my studio, uh, my own practice straight away. I, I, did a couple of sort of sidesteps after my time at Foster & Partners, still in London. Um, and I did some, some smaller projects for, for friends. And I, I also worked for your design company, um, Francis mm. design and, um, a small, but quite, quite innovative, um, your design studio. And that was also a great experience, um, uh, as it brought together, um, the interior thinking um, and combine that with the exterior styling of a yacht. It really is an amazing thing to design a yacht, whether it's a motor yacht or sailing yacht, because you're really creating um, a little self-contained world. And and
0: yeah, I, I really had a great time doing that. <clears throat> wow, amazing! And and how was State of Craft born?
1: I, I I sort of, as I mentioned, I wanted to set up on my own, and <clears throat> at some point I realized that. Um, I'm quite interested in the interior aspects of a building, and I thought that there is a sort of a strange division quite often between architecture and interiors, and um, I I never quite understood that. I think really those disciplines are uh, sort of very much fused or connected, or there's a flowing boundary. between the outside of a building and how a building relates to the street or to a cityscape but then also how how you provide spaces that that respond to uh to to, to people's needs and really thinking about the the sort of uh smaller scale aspects of of interiors lighting and finishes and so on and um, i i realized that architects quite often maybe not not always of course but Quite often, architects have maybe lost slightly interest in doing interiors or quite often clients don't uh, offer the opportunity for architects to, to even work on the interiors. Yeah. And there has been this sort of increasingly a sort of a split has crept in where clients commission architects to do uh, the building, maybe to get a building permit and get, the pro- get a project through um, or over the hurdle of planning. Mm-hmm. And then separately from that, an interior designer interior decorator is um, is engaged, and mm-hmm. I think we our sort of ethos in our design studio state of craft is to really bring together those two disciplines. um so we are architects, but we work largely on uh, interiors and specifically residential interiors
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that I think was a driver to really think think about design or architecture from the inside out, um, addressing sort of those, those basic physical and emotional needs of people and making that making that central. And I, because I think there's something lost if um, there's this division. I think it's really um, important to bring those two elements together. And, and sometimes in our work, we get the opportunity to do both architecture and interiors. Sometimes we only do the interiors
0: but then we work very closely with an architect. Oh, You're working on some phenomenal projects around the world, including one in Sydney, which is One Sydney Harbour, which is an exciting project. Renzo Piano is the architect and Len Lease the developer. Mm -hmm. That's a phenomenal project. I know it's had a few kind of stops and starts with that over the years, but it sounds like it's well underway.
1: Yes. In fact, we're working on two projects in Sydney. There's One Sydney Harbour with its three towers in Barangaroo Mm-hmm. Um, and more recently we've been working on, um, one circular key, uh, one of the sort of prime sites in, um, Sydney, um, yeah, we obviously know it well. And we've been working with Lenleys on those two projects for mm-hmm. over 10 years or about 10 years now. Um, the, uh, one Sydney Harbor project was designed by Renzo piano. And that's really our third collaboration with Renzo Piano where we created um, interiors um, that, that, that responds to the architecture. And Carrie um, um, Hill is the architect for One Circular Key.
0: Oh, that's right. We had two of the partners from um, that firm on the, on the podcast a while back. All right. Um, and so we also worked on the Shard Residences, which must have been incredible.
1: Yes, that, that was um, an important project for us. Uh, again, a very sort of long-term um, involvement from our side. We've worked through um, the whole the whole design process um, for these apartments. There are 10, 10 apartments pretty much at the very top of the Shard, which is London's, Europe's even the highest, tallest building at over 300 meters. And um, it's this sort of multi-use Um, tower with a hotel and offices and so on, a viewing gallery right at the very top. But just underneath that are 10 apartments. And we've uh, worked through the space planning um, and optimized spaces with with relation within in uh, relation to the sun path and the views over London. And then we designed the entire um, interior fit out, including all the built-in elements such as doors and kitchens and bathrooms and floors. We selected all finishes, and we also had the opportunity to create uh, the sort of show or marketing apartments or suites, um, including the artwork selection and the curation of furniture and and, and so on. So really, it was a sort of um, all-encompassing project for us over a longer period of time, but yeah, an amazing amazing location and amazing um, view from up there. Um, and that was certainly, um, a, a very, very special project for us.
0: And how do you design a home like that, at that level, w- without necessarily knowing who's going to live in it?
1: Right. I think, um, well, we have some sort of sense of, um, how these spaces, uh, could be used, um, and. We design around very sort of basic functional requirements, of course, but really, um, it's it's really about striking a balance. I think on one hand, uh, we want to create um, built-in finishes that uh, that stand the test of time and they are there to stay. But on the other hand, we want to build into our design adaptability and creating having a more open-ended approach. So that not everything is over-designed and uh, and overly treated, so that it becomes maybe uh, restrictive with regard to how people might want to use these uh, these spaces. And um, so, yeah, we sometimes uh, so we try to we try to be mindful of that balance, and it is a balancing act for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think importantly, what what uh, purchasers are looking at, particularly for these sort of very prime residential apartments is a sort of curated experience, creating an overall product that that is thought through um, and has got some some uniqueness and I think integrity or authenticity. I think that, that's become more and more um, important to people, um, so that the the home feels. it it responds really to the architecture, to the site it's in, to the city. And having those connections, having this sort of story embedding, embedding the interiors, um, and the selection of finishes, and so on, embedding that into that context and um, designing, designing those um, elements in response to the culture, the climate, etc. That that I think is important. And that really can create something that is therefore very unique, and timeless and has got that sense of of a curated experience a sense of integrity so that is important but yes i i do think that we we you know we always try to um not fall into the trap of over designing everything um we sometimes say in our office that uh you know when you there's the saying that goes that if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail and if you're a designer there's sometimes the risk that you think that everything needs to be over designed or needs to be treated in mm-hmm. a certain way when sometimes it's best to just keep a wall blank and allow for that wall to receive some artwork or shelving or collection in the future so but it is our role our role as sort of interior designers when we work on speculative design um, residential projects is probably akin to being a good host in many ways it's anticipating the needs mm-hmm. um, of of future homeowners and we obviously we have some experience uh, over you know we gained a lot of experience over the last 10 years plus working with private clients and making and tailor making uh tailoring spaces really to their to their specific needs so we've got some sense of how people probably want to live but um yeah we want to sort of be be mindful of that of of future use and adaptability
0: i guess the the yachts that you worked on previously influence your design on these apartments too, because you're, you're designing for, I guess someone can afford a yacht. They probably can afford one of these, um, these wonderful apartments at the, at the Shard. Right. Um, is, is, but I guess that's, that's like a floating, a floating home. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you work closely with people on, on the yachts? Did you work with the owners on the yeah. interior of those yachts?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, yachts are, are, are different of course, to a home that you build, um, on land. Um, they are they're, It's, it's, it's quite different yet. Some things are of course related, but yeah, I think, uh, we, we'd like to, we think we don't really approach a project with any, uh, preconceived ideas with regard to how it should look. Um, it's really about uncovering the potential of, of a particular space or of a particular site. Um, And in that sense, it's our approach for yacht is very different to how we would approach or how we have approached the designing spaces that are apartments that are high above London or in the case of Sydney, um, you know,
0: floating above the Sydney Harbour. So every project is really quite unique for us. We're both in the business of improving people's lives through design. In your practice, it's more about permanent physical form. How important are emotions and the psychological aspects of how a place makes you feel? to you i think that really
1: goes uh to the sort of it's it's about the the essence of architecture really i think that all all good architecture somehow deals with this concept the basic this basic concept of shelter um uh, in its simplest form building is is about keeping the rain out and letting the light in and i think that's really the starting point of mm-hmm. of 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 all good design of of architecture, certainly of, of a building. And, um, there are these sort of tangible or quantifiable aspects, but to, for a building to become really a, a piece of architecture, there's, there are also these more intangible aspects that need to be considered and, uh, that I think are just really important. And, um, and those aspects can, um, I mean, that includes, for example, uh, you know, the potential or the, the, um, the opportunity uh, to to sort of evoke emotions to provide a sense of calmness or comfort um, offering a sensory experience and it's really about it's really about creating spaces that can lift the spirit that create some sense of delight that appeal to all senses and um, that's obviously hugely important but Yeah, interesting. I mean, this is really this is really the domain of architecture. But really, all of those things are, you know, appealing to senses and uh, creating, creating um, a sense of comfort and so on and and calmness. It's really about interiors. It's really about creating Mm -hmm. interior spaces. And again, uh, there are there shouldn't really be a, a distinction or differentiation or division between these two disciplines. It's really flowing boundaries, but. I think uh, whilst, of course, you have to design from the outside in and consider a building in relation to its context in the the city, in a a street, for example, really a large part of of designing a successful home, let's say, is is about designing from the inside out and um, being sensitive to how spaces will be used, um, being sensitive to users' needs and addressing those sort of physical requirements but also the spatial psychological a- aspects I think are really, really important and um, should be the starting point of a, of a project. So yeah, I always thought of architecture as about, you know, it's, it's really about enclosing a void and um, the essence is, are the interiors. That's really what this is all about. Um, the sort of spatial psychology I find quite interesting and there's an anthropologist called Edward Hall who wrote this sort of famous book called The Hidden Dimension in the 1960s, I think. And he introduced this uh, concept of proxemics, as he called it. It's basically a a study of um, uh, how humans use and perceive space. And it's this idea that we all have got our spatial sort of concentric bubbles, the personal space and the social space and so on. But we are largely unaware of those uh, of those boundaries of those bubbles. Mm, but mm. we are we are keenly aware if they are violated, if people are coming too close to you, if people are stepping into your comfort zone, so to speak. And and, and that is really such an important aspect of of how we think about spaces. I find that really fascinating, the sort of spatial psychology. So, um, you know, that there's good interiors, good design, it's really really got the, the the power and the potential to um, avoid the stress that could come with uh, those sort of overlapping spatial bubbles or where people feel like they're being encroached um, um, upon and uh, I think that is that is sort of a key aspect so that, that that's a, a great uh, there's a great sort of potential there and opportunity in the, in the sense that um, interiors can directly have an impact on how you feel um, mm. just by being mindful of those psychological um, invisible aspects and then there's also this uh, the connection to nature I think is, is hugely important maybe that's that's one of the greatest luxuries in interiors that you can sit in perfect comfort in your home and still feel connected and still feel in touch with what's going on outside with nature. And that Mm -hmm. could be could be something quite, quite basic and simple. It could be a a skylight with light trickling down or dappled shade on the floor, or it could be feeling a soft breeze coming through a window, or just simply looking into a fire. So it's those really quite timeless and simple um, experiences that I think contribute a lot to a sense of well-being in, in a home. Mm hmm.
0: And, and for, for, do you think the average person understands that? You, I think the understanding how a place can feel so much different or, or can be better. Like, do we naturally have that in us to be able to work that out? Or do we always have to come to people like you and say, hey, please help me. <laughs> I just, I need to know how to live in, in a harmonious way.
1: I I think that people are not necessarily so consciously sort of aware of it. They are maybe not keenly aware of that, but... Um, but I think, yeah, we all are aware of these things subconsciously or not, but yes, I think when when we um, engage with, with, with clients, that's really um, dis- discussing or in- uncovering or exploring design options and how those can impact their um, daily routines and how they want to use these spaces. And that's really a, a process that I think is uh, really enjoyable and, and important and a lot of things come out of those conversations with clients a lot of realizations and um sort of really design quite often um only sort of uh is formed out of out of that exchange uh, between between us and
0: our clients. Do you ever go keep in touch with them and go back to see them in five years time ten years time and see how they're how they're going with their home
1: yeah yeah we've been um I've been back to uh that to places that uh that I've
0: designed. That happens. That happens sometimes. Sure. And and do they do they say you know it's just transformed my life or the kitchen bench is too low, <laughs> like <laughs> you know well, I guess could be people living in their home day in day out. Well, well, that those learnings would be really cool to hear how it panned out.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I mean, I think in many ways, um, what we always like to see is that how how people can, um, appropriate the space and make it, make it theirs. I think that, uh, you know, when you see people bringing in their own furniture, sometimes we obviously, in, in, on most of our projects, in fact, we work with the, with our clients to curate artwork, to select furniture and to really complete the whole project. But sometimes they also add over time, other bits and pieces and change their art collection and, and so on. And I think that's, that's probably, um, the biggest sort of sign of success if if the spaces are just used and continue to be used in different ways i think that's quite that's usually a good sign um yeah
0: do you ever see do you ever walk into a situation and go oh my god what have you done to this place you <laughs> um, know no, no, like there's a chair there that really bugs you or something yeah. you know Is, are you oh, like well, that? You some know. people are precious you know
1: yeah, maybe you know, maybe once or twice I would have there are things that I would have done differently, but I think that it's really, um, it's really some. It's not my home, right? I think it is really important yeah. to um, to remind yourself that this is sort of really. It's important that the client is happy and the client has to live in it, and that that is sort of uh, central to to this to the whole to whole entire project. So, yeah, one can't be too sort of arrogant about these things i think it's uh, yeah. whatever suits the, the the client
0: yeah good answer good comeback um when we chatted the other day you mentioned uh, a brilliant book that's had a big influence on you and your career mm-hmm. uh, called a pattern language um can you talk a bit about it and how it's impacted your approach to design
1: yeah sure i it's a it's a book that i probably uh bought when i was still at university and it's sort of quite uh, bleached out and um sort of Thumb, well thumb through yeah, and uh yeah. it's um i yeah I, I, it's a it's a fairly thick book so i don't think i've maybe read every single page in that book but i think the it's more of a catalog that you can refer to at various times in your in your professional life or you in your at various stages in the project and the, arch, the the sort of the architect and author christopher alexander wrote this this book in i think the late 70s um uh, and he, there was there were various other co-authors as well, I think. But it is effectively this catalog of patterns or archetypes or elements in architecture and interiors that are, uh, that he introduces as universal and rooted in human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, really, it's this idea that these archetypes are. Uh, conducive to a successful building, to uh, spaces that are accepted by and used by people, as opposed to um, a designer imposing a certain um, configuration or a certain um, spatial yeah, spatial configuration uh, onto a community or onto into a home or whatever. That is that is ultimately maybe not really for various reasons, not, not accepted, not used, because Mm -hmm. it might just be ergonomically not suitable, or it might not be mindful or respectful of those spatial psychological aspects that we talked about earlier. Um, So I think that's really, it's really interesting. Uh, There's a whole, I don't know, there probably maybe a couple hundred of of those uh, patterns identified in that book. And some, you know, it could be, for example, window seats or, uh, a six foot deep balcony or an inglenook fireplace or whatever it might be it's okay. uh those sort of um yes archetypical patterns that if you if you in, in integrate if you include those in your in your project in your building then um, that is really conducive to uh, to life in a way in' similar in an analogy to maybe a a coral reef or a forest needing certain environmental conditions for species to use those those natural habitats, those environments. And uh, and I think that is really um, quite fascinating and um interestingly this is sort of not really necessarily about um architects per se. I think a lot of those those archetypes or those patterns that are mentioned in that book um are found all over the world in a vernacular architecture where buildings have been built without architects. So it's really, it's really quite these sort of re very universal, mm. archaic um, patterns. And I think that is, that is really fascinating. So yeah, I always liked that book.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I think in terms of the, the, the majority of the projects you worked on are high end residences and yachts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of thinking as you were saying that is how do you think people's expectations have changed from that, that book from the 1970s to, you know, 2023 and beyond? Um, you know, how people are living uh, today. Has that changed in any way? Well, and I, also internationally too, because you're working on projects right. around the world. Do you see patterns in that or is there similarity? Um, in term, are we all living the same?
1: Well, I think at the, the you know, there's, there's sort of, there are differences and quite a lot of them, I think are maybe more sort of transient and superficial. Um, we try to, we try to uh, not bit first of all, we're not trying not to be guided by sort of what's fashionable at the moment. We're not really interested in that. Um, we're more interested in um, creating something that has got, uh, that is more meaningful, that goes deeper and is offers a richer experience than just about sort of the superficiality of of what is a trendy color in 2023 not that color and finishes aren't important but i think there should be there needs to be more to a successful project successful interiors than just thinking about the purely decorative aspects so Mm -hmm. um and that goes back to those sort of you know connecting to nature and creating some sense of calmness and simplicity and appealing to all senses so in many in many ways those things never change and arguably haven't changed in in centuries uh, um we always have got i think that in us that uh that that needs that desire to connect to nature and um and 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 really um feel in touch with nature it's those those simple those simple timeless elements like fire and water um and um beautiful natural finishes and light and space and so on so that that is probably timeless and but yeah certain things have changed of course um, um r- more recently with the pandemic the impact of working from home and what that means to people's lives and so on that that has got an impact um, and of course um our work is where we work say on large projects with architects um, our work is much guided by the the architect's vision um and also the particular uh layout the shape of the building the aspect of the building i i would say that's those things are they're you know they're obviously variations but um that's maybe not so much to do with um 2023 versus uh, 10 years ago yeah. um that's maybe really more project specific but i i do think well What has maybe changed is and continues to this sort of is maybe there's maybe a trend that you could say that is accelerating um, and that's about sort of the perception of luxury and really that's a sort of strange word to use for us. Um, We don't really try. We try to avoid using this word because it means so many different things to different people. It becomes a little bit meaningless. So Mm -hmm. for us, it's more about... um, you know, we define luxury more uh, as as comfort, probably as, as effortless, elegant comfort, but there's been, I think there's, there's been a shift, um, in the, in the sort of last few decades away from, uh, the sort of ostentatious display of wealth and having sort of exotic finishes and, and, and rare materials and so on. Um, the sort of wasteful showy, blingy approach um to to a home and um and there's more sort of a, a realization or a turning towards more timeless values and um simplicity and really having um really creating interiors design that is more meaningful that is not just uh, you know superficial or outward looking or to impress people but has got some Some sense of uh, design that is sustainable and design that is relevant and responsive and more unique with um you know the opportunity for personalization and craftsmanship and so on so Mm -hmm. and i think that suits as well because that's how we always thought about (laughs) design in the first place so i guess if that's a trend then that's sort of certainly um um that's something we we are pursuing Regardless, but yeah, that's those things, are maybe have maybe changed over the last 10, 20 years.
0: It's also, I guess, the buildings have got ta- taller in that period of time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about connecting with nature, it kind of it's kind of at odds when you think about it. You know, living on the top of a skyscraper mm-hmm. um, to being connected with you seems so far away from nature. Obviously, nature being on the ground, but of course, it's all around us. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you how do you bring that? You talked about before about kind of working on the interiors as inside out, but obviously mm. you're bringing the out in, right? Or, or elements of that to kind of help people feel, I guess, connected, right? Still connected to nature, even though they're in an incredibly modern, engineered building mm-hmm. in, the, in the sky. That must, That's a real. I think that's a real clever thing to do to get that right.
1: Y- yes, I, I think we also, um, you know, we are fortunate that uh, the say the two projects I mentioned earlier in Sydney, um, the, the, the two respective architects um, for those buildings uh, try to, uh, you know, try to not create a completely sealed glass tower um, where, you, you know, where you feel hermetically sealed in, like as if you're in a vertical submarine. Mm. Um, mm. For both, both uh, the Sydney projects we're currently working on, the sense of, or the, the importance of having a, a facade that allows for um, air to come in and for for people, homeowners to feel in touch with the outside is important. So that I think um, is really in the DNA of those projects in Sydney, the sense of trying to make the the building permeable and breathable and letting air in and letting people be part of what's going on outside, whether that's Uh, hearing sounds from that come from below or feeling feeling the breeze feeling the wind and the air and so on so we really extended we we sort of based our interior design concept on that and we try to really extend that that spirit into the into our interior into into the interior spaces and we try to create a lot of visual connections with the outside when you're High up in a in a fully glazed building, um, suddenly the sort of the sky becomes such a dominant aspect. The sky and the light become such a dominant aspect of your uh, of your apartment, and um, this, the the light and the colours in your apartment are constantly changing. So mm. it's really um, it's also such a in terms of the, the sheer quantity of the of of your um, wall space. In these fully glazed buildings, your room is uh, so much determined by what's going on outside. So, yeah. whether the sky is blue or pink in the morning or orange maybe at, at dusk or sunset, all of those colors that it, that that really is part of your of your environment all the time. So, um, our design very much is is mindful of that, and we try to come up with, um, uh, you know, finishes and details and so on that. That not that don't fight against that overpowering experience of nature of the sky, but really we try to come up with something that is sort of supporting, um, not competing with with that experience of nature of and, yeah. and the sky. And so there are various aspects in the um, um, and concepts um, and you know in, with regard to how we try to try to tie this the interiors. Back to the the surrounding area, back to the local context. Um, we've yeah. we, you know tactile experiences come into play here. We've uh, some apartments we created a, a floor finish that is um, rougher, a stone floor finish, and has got that uh, sensory experience of walking uh, on the on the sandy beaches or the rocky shores along the the shoreline of Sydney. And so we try to bring in. Um, tactile experiences, colors, finishes, and so on that you would find uh, close to the close to the side of a project.
0: So is it? It's you're you're in Ontario, right? Yeah. Yes. Um. Right now. Are, are you in a Are you in a, a log cabin <laughs> by a lake? <laughs> no, but I'm. probably... <laughs> it's, it's it, yeah. you know, You're in this kind of beautiful remote. Uh, I would imagine is it slightly remote? You're amongst nature. Big. Time, well, it's
1: yeah yes well we're in a, it's the capital right i'm in ottawa so it's the capital of canada which has got over a million people but we live in a part of town which uh a community that was designed in the 19th century and it was really conceived as a neighborhood as a village in in mm. um in a park in a forest so there are wine little winding roads and they're hundred plus year old trees and there are Beautiful. hardly any fences and, and there is a little lake around here. So whilst we're really quite central, we also feel like we're, um, amongst nature. It's really, um, yeah, it's really wonderful.
0: How does that, uh, experience affect your design? Cause it must influence it in some way.
1: We, what experience? experience? Well, living,
0: of- living where you, living where you are. I mean, you, you're around the world all the time, but you're also right. in this, beautiful little yeah i've got place. i see
1: yeah, yeah i've yeah. I, I think uh, in that sense i've got the best of both worlds i i travel obviously quite a bit to to london to the uk uh, to our studio and uh, our work in sydney obviously demands that i'm in sydney as required um, and uh, so i'm i'm traveling a fair bit but at the same time it's great to have uh, this our place here in canada which which gives uh, you know allows for um, great relaxation and being being so close to nature, and I think um,
0: we really enjoy this as a family. Oh, sweet! And and what do you do in your own life to stay healthy and fit?
1: Um, I, I work out with a private trainer during during the week, um, mm-hmm. and uh, on weekends, you know, there might be bike trips with kids or um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's sort of yeah, I don't know. There's it's always trying to carve out time, right? It's always the challenge to find time to actually work out. Yeah. If, um, we, are, we are, I guess, a busy family. Um, yeah, with three kids and uh, a busy work life. So that's it's not always easy to find time to uh, stay fit and healthy.
0: I can, I can totally relate to that. When my kids were younger, I got three kids too, and it was um, really hard to kind of find that balance at mm-hmm. the time. Um, what, what other projects are you excited about that you um, you guys are working on?
1: Um, we work on a on an interesting project uh, in Canada, a, a private home, and it's a historic home that we refurbish and extend. So there's uh, yeah. dealing with the existing building, but we're also extending on two sides, and uh, it's a heritage listed pro- home um, with an interesting. Um, interesting history um and uh so we're designing that and i think that's really exciting for us we're looking at other other work in in um uh in different places around the world so yeah we've got we've got some a few few opportunities there that we're currently pursuing
0: okay and i I always ask this question in the podcast daniel do you feel like you've designed your life (laughs) No,
1: I think not. I I think that, um, I guess, um, I I sort of, really, I landed where I am at the moment as a sort of result of being, uh, of, you know, chance encounters being bounced around by circumstances Mm -hmm. and meeting different people and, um, you know, following up on certain opportunities. So. I, I wish I could say this is all sort of by design, but it it, it really isn't. Um <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh things that I see in my life have come together sort of somehow organically or sometimes surprisingly. And um
0: yeah, so that's I guess an adventure. Well, you've come a, a long way, um from Germany to London to Canada mm-hmm. and everywhere else. Sydney. <laughs> um it sounds like an incredible journey and really enjoyed talking with you today daniel thanks for being on the podcast
1: yeah it's a great pleasure thank you so much
0: thank you for listening into today's episode of design your life with the state of craft founder daniel Goldberg. tune to the next episode where i catch up with katrina strickland the phenomenal editor of the critically acclaimed good weekend magazine Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.